Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, if you remember when I was up here 30 seconds ago, we are in a series entitled Spark. And the purpose of this series is to explore practices that spark in us greater love. In the modern American church, it is very easy for faith to become about what you know. For faith to become about head knowledge and how well understanding you are of all the principles and components of faith. And so what we do is we read a lot of books, we listen to a lot of sermons, we listen to a lot of podcasts, and hope that that produces in us love, joy, delight. And head knowledge is good, it is important, learning things is key, high believer in listening to sermons, right? I think that's an important thing to do. But knowing things as good as it is, is not enough. If I only know about you, I'm not your friend, I am a stalker. Friendship requires experiences of the other. It requires practices that put us in proximity to one another, eating a meal together. It requires me listening to you. It requires going on adventures together. Real friendship is an embodied practiced kind of thing. And learning about one another is important. If I know nothing about you, I am also not a good friend. So I need to learn about you. I need to know about you. And I also need to have experiences with you. I need to practice friendship. And like a relationship requires some practice, some embodied action, our faith requires for real growth, for real delight, for real joy, practice. So throughout this series, you could say that we are exploring practices of relationship, practices that connect us to God and help us experience God's presence, and in so doing, grow our love. I like to use the word practice because there's not intended to be a perfection. Practice is a a thing we do in experimenting. It's a thing that we do in growing. It's a thing that we do in learning. This is a practice, a joy, a delight that grows our love. The last two weeks, we looked at the practice of play and the practice of rest, both that we felt were really important to begin this series with because the new year can bring with it so much like anxiety and hustle and hard work. And those are good things. It's good to set resolutions, good to set goals. But we wanted to, before we even begin to talk about goals, resolutions, the hard work of a new year, achieving your dreams, find ourselves rooted in something non-anxious. To talk about some practices that would pause the busyness of life, and connect us into a more contemplative, reflective, playful space. Today we're moving into a practice that's like similar in that it is reflective, but it kind of lives in between interior and exterior practices. It's a a 
contemplative practice and also an action practice, which we'll explore as we go. And you might have figured it out from our reading today, but the practice that we are exploring this morning is the practice of prayer. Now, I've said this before, and I have uh, upset people by saying it before, so please don't at me after I say this, Um, but I find prayer to be a particularly difficult practice. For me, maybe you love prayer, maybe it's really energizing for you, but for me, prayer is a difficult practice. And based upon conversations that I have with members of the community, I think I am not alone (laughs) in experiencing prayer to be a difficult practice. And there's a lot of reasons that prayer can be a difficult practice. There's theological reasons, like if God already knows, why am I praying? There's experiential reasons. There's anxiety reasons. And they're all intertwined, and it's kind of hard to unravel those different reasons. And, and as I was thinking about why is prayer so difficult, I was reminded of a story from my life when I was in high school. When I was in high school, um, which is about when I started taking my faith, um, just like pursuing my faith, uh, a very good friend of mine who was a part of our church, who was a part of the youth group that I attended, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was one of those things that was serious immediately. You know, like sometimes you hear about a diagnosis and you wait. You're like, I don't know what it means. They're going to operate. They're going to find out if it's benign or malignant. But this is one of those events where you know it's serious immediately because as he was driving to prom, he had a seizure. And as they get him to the hospital and do a CAT scan, they find this like mass in his brain. And so immediately we know that it is weighty and we know that it's serious and we know that it's life-threatening and we know that this person's life has changed forever by this moment. And so we do what good Christians do and we begin to pray. His family prays without ceasing. Our church prays without ceasing. And I prayed constantly. But then my friend died. And if you have an experience like this, one that is also defined by prayer, in which you have prayed actively, in which you have brought your concerns and your petitions and your requests to God, and then it goes this way, well, it makes prayer something complicated. It makes prayer something difficult. It fills it with fraught theology and fraught emotions and makes it challenging. Because all of a sudden you have to wrestle with these hard questions. Big and natural questions. Like, is there something wrong with our faith? When my dad died when I was a kid, I was too young to remember this, but people would tell my mom that she had too little faith to heal him. You already ask yourself that question, yet... Practices like prayer can evoke that kind of response in you. You're like, is this a faith issue? Did I not do something right? Did I pray wrong? Is there something wrong with my prayer? Is there something wrong with my faith? Did not enough people pray? Were we not genuine enough in our prayers? Prayer is a difficult practice, and I think this story illustrates why it's a difficult practice because it is a moment in which our faith and our life collide together. There's a lot of things about faith, a lot of things about belief that can live in abstraction. They can kind of live behind like a scientific plexiglass. You can believe things about God and it not really 
matter. But prayer is one of those strange practices that actually puts you in proximity to real life. When you pray, you sort of vulnerably open yourself up to a possibility in the world around you. Prayer is difficult because it is a moment when our faith and our life can collide together, when expectations or beliefs or assumptions are open to disruption and, unfortunately, disappointment. Prayer is deeply vulnerable in that way. And when I think about my own self and what makes prayer difficult, and I think about the story or the other stories that have characterized my prayer life, and I begin to unravel them and pay attention to what's at the very bottom of it, I think prayer is difficult because I am afraid of what might happen in prayer. Trigger something in me, some anxiety, some fear, some uncertainty. I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm afraid of being disappointed. I'm afraid of being wrong. This is clearly and legitimately true when we think about crisis or we think about death or we think about trauma or we think about those big moments in life in which we pray. Like, it's easy to see how that's connected to fear. But I think that prayer and fear is a theme we'll find in all of everyday life as well. It may not feel as weighty, but prayer lives in the domain of anxiety and control in that weird meeting space between those two things that space between life and faith. And the easiest way, I think, for us to handle the anxiety of regular life that often plays itself out in prayer is simply not to pray. I think that's going to be the easiest way to handle the anxiety of life. Because we just don't pray. And we can justify it theologically. I think I do this all the time. I justify not praying theologically by saying, God knows what I need. So why would I pray? Which Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom prayer, by saying that. Your Father who is in heaven knows what you need. So that's theologically true, right? We believe that. We believe that God is good. We believe that God knows. And so you can kind of justify not praying based upon something theological. Or maybe you've grown up in a tradition where prayer felt kind of empty. And so you are tired of thoughts and prayers. And you're like, I just would like to handle business myself. I just want to put some action behind it. And so you stop praying because of that. Whatever the reason, I think the easiest way to handle fear and anxiety is simply not to pray, to handle our own business. And the truth is, we're pretty good at managing fear and anxiety without prayer. Pretty good at handling it through hard work. That's what we go to school for. It's what we plan for. It's what we strategize for. It's why I save money. It's I'm hoping to handle the uncertainty of life through my own big brain. And I also think that the last two to three years have been some of the craziest, most anxious times of our life. And there's been moments where it's pressed us to feeling outside of control. And yet, at the same time, We've done an okay job managing that scenario. Look, we're still here. We're not so bad at managing our own anxiety. And so sometimes it's just easier to not pray because I'll control it, I'll handle it, I'll manage it. And I don't have to worry about the expectations, the disappointment, or the fear, or that I might be wrong. God may not answer. 
So we just don't. But not praying is only one way of handling it. Because there's moments in our life, especially if you are a Christian or you grew up spiritual or you claim some kind of faith, there's moments in life where it feels like we are pressed beyond control. Maybe the last two to three years is a place where that did happen for you. You're pressed beyond control and you find yourself praying where you are like, at your limit, right? I do this all of the time. Is that I may handle something for a long time and then stress builds and I will then begin to pray. And I'll find myself praying quite a bit in that moment, right? Offering a lot of prayers, a lot of words. My prayer life really increases when I'm stressed or anxious and I've tried all my other mechanisms of control to handle it. And there's something really beautiful about that, about praying when you feel stressed, but I also think that it can be a last resort way of controlling our anxiety. At least for me, prayer can be a means through which I spiritualize my anxiety. I think this is actually what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, verse 7, when he says, When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words thinking that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Jesus is accusing people of praying more words so that they might be heard. It's like, if I pray enough, then I'll be listened to. If I pray enough, then God will do what I'm asking. If I pray enough, it's like the equation is right, I've done the thing that is necessary, and God will respond, which is a way of controlling thinking that if I can pray enough or pray the right way in order to get a result is just a different way of controlling what is happening around me. It's my final attempt in many cases. I've tried hard work. I've tried being smart enough. Neither of those things worked, so now I will try prayer. Now, I don't say that to shame anybody in this room. I do that, and I think any prayer is good prayer. So, Scripture says that God delights in the prayers of his people. So all prayer is good prayer. The problem is that in both scenarios, prayer has become a means to manage control, my fear. So whether we don't pray, we're managing our fear through our own abilities. Sometimes when we pray, we're managing our own fear through spiritual words, spiritual language, spiritual equations. And in both scenarios, we're trying to handle, control our own anxiety, and that is a trap. That is a trap. Even when it is cloaked in spiritual language, it is a trap to manage your own anxiety through prayer because it still places the weight of anxiety and fear on your own shoulders. You've not released fear. You've not gotten rid of the anxiety. You've done nothing about the well inside of you. All you have done is give you a new tool to try to manage that same anxiety, but it still rests on you. You still carry it. It still weighs on you. Now, maybe you're in this room and prayer has actually felt easy for you. So I don't say any of these things to damper your enthusiasm for prayer. But because I believe that prayer is a collision of life and faith, that that's where prayer happens and that's what prayer does to us, I think it is unavoidable 
that it will produce in you moments of difficulty and struggle. I don't know how it wouldn't if you're really living or really believing. How it wouldn't cause some kind of struggle. When Jesus prays, especially in the garden, you see that wrestle of life and faith. Do I actually go to the cross? There is a real tension to Jesus' prayer. In fact, the nation of Israel, Israel means one who contends with God. They get that name from wrestling with God in prayer, from a fight. Because prayer is that place where faith and life collide together, and it will look like a difficult wrestling match. And I think ours will too, if we're really living and really believing this thing. And so the question becomes, if it's going to be a place that is a collision of these different realities, how can prayer be different than a place of control? How can it be more than that or maybe less than a place of control? How can we escape the trap of placing more anxiety on our own shoulders when we pray? But Jesus teaches us to pray. And Jesus' prayer is really interesting. And I think it's very different than a prayer of control. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, it is not about controlling either faith or life. Jesus' instructions about prayer are all about how we can experience and participate in God's presence when faith and life collide. Prayer is about experiencing and participating in God's presence, especially when faith and life collide. This is what makes Jesus' instructions about prayer very, very different than the way that I often pray. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells his followers to pray like this. Some scholars say that it is better translated, recite this prayer, or pray this. Either way, whether it's pray like this or pray these words, Jesus wants us to hear what it is that he's saying about prayer. It's not that often we get this kind of like clear instruction to listen, clear instruction to do this thing. It says, pray like this. And then the very first line of the prayer is this. Our Father. Most prayer in my own life begins with me. It's pretty natural to begin with yourself in the practice of prayer. I bring my own concerns, my own anxiety, my own struggles, my own desires to the conversation I'm having with God. My prayer tends to center around me, my own issues. And I think that's important, and I think it's good, and I think it's welcome in prayer. So please hear that, that God wants to hear those things. But it is interesting that Jesus begins this prayer, this instruction about how to pray, or this prayer that we are supposed to pray, by saying this, Our Father. Our is a fundamentally different starting point than mine. Our begins us in a different location. Our Father begins prayer in belonging, not in isolation. 
hour begins us in our shared connection to one another, in our shared communion with those around us. Our begins us in family, in citizenship. It begins us in belonging as opposed to isolation or autonomy or individuality. Though those things can be important, our begins us in connection. It is never about denying that we are a self. We are never less than a self, but we are more than a self. We are a part of more, and our Father reminds us that we are a part of more. Our starts prayer with an enlarged perspective. What are you seeing? What are you viewing? What are you looking at as you pray? Instead of beginning with my own needs or my own fear or my own anxiety, our challenges us to look up and around. And there is nothing more powerful for dislodging anxiety than looking to others. On the one hand, that is a powerful way of dislodging anxiety because we see the needs and the concerns and the issues of those around us. We are drawn into a community and the collective concerns of that social people. But it also dislodges anxiety because we see that we belong to more than just ourselves and others also care and concern for us. I'm a uh, adjunct teaching a Bible class at a college right now on interpreting the Bible. Uh, weird flex. And, uh, <laughs> nerd. And we were talking of, in that class, the, the, the whole thing is interpreting the Bible. And what are the things that make it difficult to interpret the Bible? And one of the things that makes it very difficult to interpret the Bible is that we read the Bible from a 21st century American social location. So we see it as Americans see it. And there's something very beautiful about that. There's also things that we miss. And one of the things that we miss is that Hebrew people always began from community, whereas 21st century Americans begin from individuality. It's kind of the beautiful thing about America is that we're individuals. But Hebrews were communal first. And many cultures around the world are still communal first. And we were talking this through, and it came to this moment of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus begins by saying, Our Father. And one of the students in the class said something that was really beautiful. She said, Praying Our Father reminds me that others are praying with and for me. I was like, Oh, that is beautiful to know that I'm a part of this prayer with other people. She's like, It reminds me that others are praying with inform me that I am a part of another's our prayer. She was like, it's kind of like many hands make light the work, right? Like if we're all praying for one another, if we're all a part of an hour, she's like, it's like the, the, the concerns and the anxieties that you carry are dispersed amongst a body of people who are praying for and with you also. So yes, you see the concerns and the needs of others, but they're also now looking to the concerns and the needs of you and collectivizing those and saying, Our Father, see this. Jesus begins this prayer in belonging. Our Father. The prayer goes on to then say, Our Father, who is in heaven. Who is in heaven speaks to not necessarily God's location, though that's an important part of it, 
but it speaks to God's authority. Heaven is seen as the throne of God, the domain of God. God is here on earth also, but when you talk about heaven, you're talking about like a seat of authority. It's like maybe if you talked about Washington, you're like, Congress meets in Washington. That's the legislative power. So for Jesus to say, our Father who is in heaven, he's talking about the place of authority. Jesus will use this language later to describe himself when he'll say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So talking about God as our Father who is in heaven is to say our God, our collective, our communal, our social God who reigns in heaven above the earth, who has authority in both places. If the first line is about getting a bigger sense of ourselves, a bigger sense of our own community, the second line is about getting a bigger sense of who God is. A bigger imagination for the God that we are praying to, the one who is in heaven, the one who is on the throne, the one who is king of all, the one who is creator. The second line that comes with that is similar to it. Our God who is in heaven, holy is your name. This speaks to God's character and nature. Not only is God powerful and working, but God does what is good. That's what it means to be holy, that God does what is good, that God is trustworthy to do what is good. Now what these first two lines of this prayer do, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, what those two lines do is they center us in a different story. First two lines of this prayer are about exiting the story of self, anxiety, and control, and entering into just a new imagination, an enlarged perspective, a different story. If I began here with my concerns and how am I able to control it, our Father immediately puts me in community, angled and oriented towards a God who is in control. centers us in a new story, connects us to a different reality, and is dislodging us from our own attempts to center ourselves and control. The Apostle Paul will say something very similar about prayer in Philippians 4, 5 through 6. He'll say this, the Lord is near. So don't be anxious about anything. Rather, Bring up all your requests to God in prayers, petitions, along with giving thanks. It's interesting, prayer separates the act of petition, which is asking for something, from the act of prayer. Makes them two different things in this moment. And petition is good and right. Paul says you should bring up petitions to God. You should make your requests to God. But he says, first you should pray. Don't be anxious about anything, but instead bring yourself in prayer because prayer, as the first two lines of the Lord's Prayer say, are about orienting us towards God and others. It's about giving us a different perspective, giving us a different story, giving us a different way of seeing. And then it makes space for this next line. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done. 
This is the first ask of the prayer. The first ask of the prayer is for God to work. It's a prayer for God to bring about God's presence and make it real amongst us. And it flows out of those first two lines because as we have become oriented towards something bigger, as we become oriented towards the concerns of those around us, as we have become oriented towards trusting a God who is in control and is good, we are now ready to participate in the emergence of that God's kingdom around us. By centering ourselves in our God, our Father, who is in heaven, who is holy, we are making space in our own lives and in the world around us for what God is doing. We're making space in our own selves and in the communities around us for what God is going to do. Praying this kind of prayer, I think, does something to us. It's really different than the prayers of control and anxiety that I so regularly offer. Before we even look at the last part of this prayer, if we even have time to, when we pray these first three lines, something in us begins to shift. And the first thing that I think begins to happen to us is that this kind of prayer teaches us to stop fighting for control to let our anxiety rest and instead to cooperate with what God is doing. So the Lord's Prayer is teaching us to do. Theologian Karl Barth says it really beautifully. He says, It cannot be for those who pray for the coming of God's kingdom to accomplish with their own deed the act for which they pray. It's like you're praying for something that is bigger than you. You're praying for something that is Beyond you, you're praying for something with an enlarged capacity to see. And it begins to free us and teach us that we cannot control this, and so we shouldn't even try. Instead, we're invited to participate. This weekend, I watched uh, Encanto. Has anybody seen the Disney movie Encanto? A handful of nods. You just immediately start crying. I, try, I won't ruin any of, the, any of the movie for you, but the premise of the movie, at some level, is that control will crush a family. And that the thing that makes something special, and the thing that is a gift to that family, and the thing that is a miracle, is the language that it uses all throughout, will be crushed by control. And the same is true of our own lives. Control even when we believe that we're trying to help, even when we believe that we're doing what is right, makes a situation about us. It makes life about us. It makes the world about us. And even when we're trying to help, control will most often suffocate the situation and the people and those around us. So instead of joining or participating, we make this moment about ourselves. So prayer in this way is first about submitting our own control to God. Recognizing that we can't and don't have to carry the weight of the situation. Praying holy is your name lets God be God. We can place our anxiety down, which frees us up to join and to participate and to experience God's presence.
And when that happens, when we start to lay down control, when we start to lay down anxiety that would force a moment to be about us, prayer helps us to pay attention to what God is doing, to see what is breaking in around us. A few years ago, uh, a woman in this church named Julie Chang was in my house church, and she led our house church on a prayer walk, which is not a thing that I had done a lot of and not a thing that our house church had done a lot of. But she led our house church on a prayer walk near her neighborhood because right near where she lived, a new men's shelter had been proposed. And I don't know if you remember this moment a handful of years ago, but when the downtown shelters were closing, a bunch of new shelters were proposed kind of all throughout the broader city, and the response was visceral from the community. There's like a really famous moment of in the city of Draper, like townsfolks and the mayor having like a yelling match back and forth that's like on recorded uh, radio. And uh, so it was an intense moment, lots of emotions, lots of feelings from lots of different parts of the community. And Julie was like, instead of doing either of those things, let's go and pray. Let's see if we can pay attention to what's happening in this moment. And so we did. We went and walked the area around where this shelter was going to be built. We began to pray. And I remember thinking in that moment that I was feeling um, really critical of people who didn't want the shelter to be built was feeling like pretty viscerally critical of those people. And we go and we pray, and the very first thing that we notice as we're walking and praying is that right next to the proposed shelter site is this little urban homestead, like a little farm. And the first thing we notice is the goats. There's like three goats, and we're like, whoa, goats! And we like run over to hang out with the goats. And the people who own the goats were like, hey, what are you doing with my goat? And, uh, <laughs> and they... That sounded strange. We were just seeing the goats. We see the goats. Prayer led us to goats. That's the point of the story. We see the goats, and we begin to just like hang out. And the couple who owns the goats, who owns this little homestead, they come out and they meet us. And it begins a conversation. We learn about them. We learn about the homestead. And we like buy some eggs and have this like really lovely conversation with them. But quickly, it moves into like, hey, we're here because we wanted to see this proposed site for the shelter. And these folks start to talk about their own experience with the process. And I remember feeling so convicted about the story they told because the woman who co-owned this homestead, she was wrestling with what to do about the shelter because she had a history of abuse from men. And so she was afraid, legitimately so. And yet she also held hope that it could be something that was beautiful and healing and restorative. I tell you that story because prayer in that moment, this kind of kingdom-oriented prayer, what it did is enable us to pay attention to what was really happening in that space. It is easy to write over someone a narrative. It's easy to tell their story for them. And when I try to control, even in the act of prayer, I often do that. I write over a story. But in actually going to a place and actually praying and actually opening space for the kingdom to do something, a new story, a true story began to emerge that was much more complicated than the one that I had wanted to tell, one that saw her as a human, as a real person. And then as we began to pay attention and as Julie led us 
in paying attention, to hear that story, what then is enabled through this kind of prayer is space for the kingdom to actually do something that is significant. When we pray in this way, space opens for the kingdom to actually emerge in real life, for God's presence to be made known in real life. When I give up control, when I pay attention to what God is doing, we are ready to join. And it cannot be the inverse. Because if I don't pay attention and I try to control, I don't make space for God's presence to be available. Instead, I suffocate the moment. I fill it with my own space. They don't need that. I've already written over them a narrative that was untrue. They don't need more of my space. They need God's presence, and I need to be present to them. And prayer enables that to happen. The missionary Vincent Donovan says it really beautifully. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We not only open our lives to God's inbreaking presence, creating a new we are saying that we ourselves are willing to be involved as the participant in God's presence. Prayer opens space for the kingdom to emerge in real life. It opens space for God's presence to be made known and for us to join God's work in that place. For us to be participants, for us to experience God's presence without fear an anxiety that often suffocates it and controls it and shuts it down. Instead, we can enter spaces where life is colliding with faith, and we can carry in us the peace and presence of Christ. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and one of my favorite images of Dr. King is this moment here, which is right before he's about to be arrested in Birmingham. I, I don't actually know that I need to say anything else besides that. This is an image of the peace of the kingdom breaking in. It, this is an image of God's presence being made known. In the midst of such vitriolic hostility, submits control to the kingdom of Jesus and begins to pray, and in this moment, the kingdom breaks in. Like Christ on the cross praying for those who would crucify him, the kingdom breaks in. True kingdom prayer, like the prayer that we're reading in this moment, it doesn't call us out of the world. It doesn't call us out of hostility. It doesn't call us out of violence. But instead, because it lives in the in-between, in the intersection of faith and life, it actually calls us into the midst of the most hostile and violent of places because we know that if we submit ourselves to God's work, we can participate in God's presence breaking out. My friend and mentor David Fitch says it this way, Kingdom prayer does not remove us from the world, but places us firmly in the middle of it. 
Even in the most violent, awkward, and hopeless circumstances, kingdom prayer opens space for God's presence and strengthens those to walk faithfully in that presence. Missio, what if we prayed like this? What if we learned to give anxiety fear, control to God, to stop striving and suffocating and instead to trust, to pay attention, to know ourselves as a part of a community that belongs together, to know our God is holy and good. What if we prayed this way in our workplaces? Might the kingdom begin to break out? What if we prayed this way in our neighborhoods, if we took Julie Chang's example and began to pray in places of hostility, we might actually see the presence of God begin to open itself up. What if we prayed this way in our families? I think we might begin to see the kingdom emerge. Missio, we need this practice. And so as we close... And as we, you know, get ready to send ourselves out this week, here is my invitation, my hope, my, my desire for us as a community is that this week, if, if for only a week, we would offer Jesus' prayer every day. Just try offering this prayer every day. Early Christians would pray it throughout the day, different hours prayer of ours because they wanted to consistently be submitting themselves to the presence and purpose and will and love and community that God has called us into. But maybe it's a good place to start. Would you pray this prayer every day? And would you slow down on each line of the prayer? When you pray, Our Father, would you focus on your shared belonging with those around you, with those you don't see, with those you don't even know but are connected to because of God's work? When you come to the line, who is in heaven, would you center on God's authority and grandeur and power? And when you come to the line of your name is holy, would you reflect on God's goodness and trustworthiness? And then from that reflection and from that place of centering, would you begin to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, so that you might pay attention. It is from this place, we didn't even get to the second half of the prayer, it is from this place that all other petitions flow. I'm going to read you one more quote, and then I want to end us and just take a minute to pray this prayer before we come to the table. But here is the quote that I'm going to offer that will hopefully give some context to the rest of this. This is from David Fitch again. He says, All the concerns for provisions and safety and forgiveness flow from this kingdom prayer. As we are formed by God's will over our lives, all desires become shaped by God. We are able to see the needs before us with trust in Him. We're able to become part of something so big that we ourselves become enlarged. We see ourselves as a part of God's mission, and we are then able to pray for need, including our own, like never before. Missy, let's pray. God, wake us up today.
to your presence here in the midst of us, to the goodness of your name and the authority of your position. As we offer your prayer today, would it help us, teach us to to dislodge anxiety and fear and our own sense of control, to give that to you, to center ourselves in the goodness and power of you so that we might pay attention and join the work that you're doing. God, wake us up. In your name we pray. Amen.